Welcome to the Inferno Cast, everyone. Today we have a very special treat. We have Mr. Richard Bressler, who's going to be talking to us today. Um, definitely fortunate enough to have heard your name and know a little bit of your background and story, but it was our mutual friend uh, Jack Topper that technically connected us, um, and I, I'm really fortunate for that because we've already got to have a couple cool discussions. So I just wanted to let you kind of introduce yourself real quickly to. Uh, our students and listeners, and then we'll kind of get into it. Okay. Well, my name is Richard Bressler. I started training in July of 1979. Um, when the only, the only, um, the only, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but, uh, the only thing that I heard about jujitsu was something that I read in a comic book. Oh yeah, yeah, because they used to have those little ads and stuff in there. Yeah, the jujitsu yeah, man. Like, so you're being bullied, you know, do jujitsu, you know. And other than that, yeah. but who knew where to learn it from? I mean, it was just something. <laughs> you, that's why you had to send in the mail thing so they could tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to go to Brazil. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I was. Uh, I was in the, the fast food business, a family business with my family. I, you know, I spoke to you earlier and I was saying how jujitsu saved my life. Yeah. Well, I was doing a, a business that I hated. I mean, fast food, selling hamburgers and hot dogs is, you know, fast food is just not what I'm about, especially mm -hmm. anymore, but that's what I was brought up in. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't happy with my life. I had happened to purchase a waterbed and then a couple weeks later I I bought a a whole set with a frame and stuff like that so I had another mattress and I went back to the shop I go hey can you guys buy this back and they go no so I'm like I had another so back then we didn't have um Craigslist so I put it on the recycler for all you young guys this was a newspaper you know and, uh, oh, oh, okay. So this was like, a, so you had to publish this in a news publication, which shoot, half the listeners probably don't even know what a waterbed is. They're like, what's a waterbed? <laughs> right. So, so I get home from work and, and we did have answering machines back then, you know, but had a little, uh, a little cassette tape. On had the it. actual cassette. You had to push play and then flip over. Yeah. Yeah. And rewind. And so, um, this guy calls up and says that he's uh, looking for a waterbed mattress. So I got the number, called him back, and Horian answered the phone. Oh wow! And uh, and he said, "Yeah, that was my roommate." And he and he said, "But he already bought a mattress." I mean, between between when I called and when he left the message, had to be two or three hours. Yeah. So I said, "Okay, well, see you later." And he goes, "But." He goes, I'm looking for one. Oh. So I said, okay. He lived in Redondo Beach then. I lived in the marina. He said, you know, I said, well, come on up. So he was up there in like a half an hour. Back then you could get from the South Bay to the marina. <laughs> yeah, the traffic would let. Of course, now yeah. you can too. Yeah, right now. Definitely you can get anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, sure. very fast. But um, so he came in. He ended up uh, getting the mattress from me. And I had, because I had a buddy in the business, I had three extra king size waterbed sheets. 
Oh, okay, okay. I thought you were going to say three more mattresses. I was like, no, 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 no. I had, <laughs> you're, I had I you're an underground sheets. mattress had, dealer. Yeah, yeah. I get good sheets on, uh, I mean, good deal on sheets. So I had three sets in the package. And he yeah. goes, how much do you want for these? And I said, $15 a set, you know, which is a, you know, good deal on some sheets. And he goes, how about all three sets for 15? And I'm mm. like, are you kidding? Well, that's $5 for a set of waterbed sheets. Yeah. And he goes, and he goes, come on, I'm from Brazil. I don't have a lot of money. I don't speak English. Yeah. And he says, you never know what will come back to you. And the guy was a nice guy. He was very charming, very relaxed, good vibe. So I said, okay, fine. So, you know, for $40, he got a, water, a king size waterbed and three sets of sheets. And as we're walking downstairs to the front door, he goes, my friend, have you ever done any martial arts? And I didn't want to sound like I hadn't. So I said, yeah, I did. Uh, I boxed for a little bit, you know, and I boxed for a total of like, you know, three to six months, right. just enough to be dangerous to <clears throat> yeah. myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and I said, why? And he goes, well, my family's been doing jujitsu in Brazil. And we were a bunch of, you know, we're champions. And, and I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. yeah you're this champion jujitsu. Like you're a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, I said, okay. And he said, why don't you come by for a free class? Oh, and I went like, wow, free? I'll do it. Yeah. So I drove down to his place. And, uh, and this was before the garage that, that uh, was in Hermosa Beach. This was before that. This was in North Redondo for probably close to maybe a year the classes were there. So this was pre-Gracie Garage. And this, this was, was Well, this was the garage, but no one talks about that garage. Right. Because the Gracie garage that really became the garage, which was October of 1980, yeah. was the garage that I shared with Horian because we ended up getting a house together. Oh, okay. So, okay. So, That's awesome. I was doing drugs and really wasn't in a good place. That's why I say it saved my life. Yeah. And I was in therapy, wanting to find, you know, answers, wanted to stop. And, uh, and I told him, I said, you know, I got to get away from, from my roommates because they're talent agents, it's drugs. I, I, I don't want to be around that stuff. Yeah. So I want to get up, you know, I got to get a new place. And he said, I'm looking for a place. Let's get a place together. So you were the Gracie roommate from 1979. Well, well, 1980s when we moved in. 80s whenever you guys moved in. Well, on the first class. So when you showed up to the first class, was it just you and him? Yeah, just me and him. So you got a private lesson. You didn't know anything. And he probably showed you all kinds of cool ways to choke you that you could tap out. Well, he did, you know, it, it was so much different than what I had imagined. Because, put it this way, if I had walked into a school, especially some of the schools that I've seen now, I'd probably turn around and walk out. Mm -hmm. Because... I was never really like, I never had that zeal to compete. Right. And he sensed that in me. Not that I didn't compete early on, but 
I never really like wanted to train, 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 train because my body, you know, it just, I mean, I started at 28 or 27 mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and I, and I trained and I, and I did some of the, like when we went to different schools and stuff, I, I did some of the early on challenges. Yeah. Um, because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> right. Mean, yeah. You didn't it, know any better. And I think that's yeah. something a lot of times that people forget once they're in the industry or like they're into jujitsu is that the normal person, when they go looking for a martial art, you know, they hear self-defense, protect myself. They don't hear world champion competitor, you know, learn the points, learn all about all the belts. Like, the, you know, their, their internal lens is almost something of reflective of television or comic books of like, I'm going to learn some moves to stop somebody that's trying to hurt me, you know, and then this whole other culture comes up of, you know, just the, the competition and, and, and the sport and, and the, even the competitive fighting that, like you said, is just sometimes not everybody cues in for that. You know, it's like they'll do it, but it's just not really who they are naturally. You know, they're not like, yeah, I'm going to go look for competition. So I think that, that makes sense. And I think that's still a struggle that people fight even today in schools is they don't know what martial arts looks like in a regular person's head. They just know what it looks like in their head that's been training for 20 or 30 years, you know? Right. Like there's a right. And, and there was no real competitions back then. Yeah, because, nothing structured at all, yeah. Yeah, because he just said he wanted me to be able to defend myself in the street. Yeah. And that's what I want. That, that's, he said, that's, that's, Originally, that's why people come to learn self-defense yeah. is to do, defend yourself. No one goes into a school going, I want to become a world champion. Yeah. Yeah, that I definitely, mean, especially know. in those days, that was just not, I mean, that, that, that's a new uh, construct that has been created, you know, which is fine. And I love that part of it because, you know, that's attribute development that when you tell somebody, hey, protect yourself, but don't follow the rules. I mean, they're going to perform well. They, they will do a good job, you know, but, and that's where I feel like it's so important to hear um, some of these old stories and influences, you know, of like the core, where it came from, what it was for, you know? So, so you met, you did your lesson and then you needed a roommate and you guys decided to move in together. Um, at this time, was he having regular classes, a lot of private lessons? <clears throat> no, he, he didn't have a lot because I mean, you know, there was, there was, I mean, and back then, I mean, first of all, we moved in October of 80. And mm -hmm. the, the first week that we were there, Elio Gracie Hickson and Carlos Gracie Jr. came and spent a week with us. Oh, so, wow. I mean, to me, that was just like, wow, here I have the best of the best yeah. underneath in my house. Sitting in your living room. Yeah. Yeah. You know, getting a class with Hickson, getting a class with uh, Elio Gracie, uh, yeah. getting a class with Carlos Gracie Jr. I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you know, you get a chance. And the boys to were young back then, too, weren't they? Well, Hickson was 18. Yeah, he was just a kid. And Elio was younger than I am now. Oh, so, really? <laughs> so just a couple <laughs> years younger. So it's still like going, wow, that's yeah. crazy. Well, and getting to see him move, you know, closer to his prime. I mean, you know, like not, there's people that knew him in his prime, but just, just being able to be there when he was more mobile and healthier, I'm sure that was, uh, you know, just really neat to be a part of. Elliot Gracie stayed, he would still, I mean, I, I remember rolling with him when we opened the academy 
when he was in his 80s. Mm -hmm. So you know, he was still, still moving around pretty decent in his mid 80s. And here I'm in my 40s rolling with him, thinking that I have a chance to catch him and, right. you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and realizing, you know, it's, he, he was in such control. Yeah. So, you know, it, but it was, it was uh, definitely a different time because a lot of, you know, so the question was, did he have a lot of classes? Well, <clears throat> he always said, like, if you bring somebody in, and they, and they sign up, you get a free class. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of my brother's friends, my brother's about eight years younger than I am, who, who really never got involved in jujitsu, but um, his best friend at the time did. I went over to the house because I lived in, uh, in the South Bay and, you know, he lived, my brother lived with my parents and his friend was over there. So I went into the house and, you know, Back then, you couldn't. Sh I couldn't shut up about jujitsu because I'd finally found something to help me that was positive that I could stop yeah. talking and stop thinking about drugs. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I, I remember going to the house and going, "Oh man, I met this guy and he does jujitsu and this." And I said, "You see this beach towel over here?" He goes, "Yeah." I said, "I could choke you out with it." <laughs> and he goes, "He goes, no way." And I said, "Seriously?" So I took the thing and I wrapped it around his neck and. You know, he goes, whoa, I got to learn this. So he signed up and, you know, so, and then he would tell other people. And so, yeah. you know, Horian had, you know, a few throughout the day. And, and so now uh, this was still in the garage at the house you guys had? Oh, yeah, this was in the, okay. we didn't, yeah. we, Horian stayed in the garage from 19, well, when I met him in 79, the academy did not open until 1990. Okay, so you guys had 10 years in the garage. You know, yeah. At one time, so we had Hermosa and then Horian after a few years. Well, I lived there for a year, and then mm -hmm. on Gracie was born. And before he was born, about two months before he was born, Horian comes to me and he goes, Richard, we have a two-bedroom house. He said, you got to go. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I got to go? <laughs> you know, I love this house. Yeah. You know, so I figured it was best if I left and then, and then they had Hanner, and then they brought Hoist to live with them. Here, it's two bedroom house, one bath. They have Hanner and Hidon, and Hoist comes to stay with them to help teach. Yeah. As like an 18 year old kid. So, you know, it's, and then after a while there, they, you know, I think, I don't know if she got pregnant again, but they had to move into a different place and they mm -hmm. moved to Torrance. And then they start getting busy there, and then Hickson may have come. You know, I, the chronology is very, I don't remember exactly, but I yeah. remember Hickson came over and, uh, and lived in a house. And at one time, Horian had four houses with a garage going. The Machados oh, wow. were on one. So Hegan, Machado, and Carlos. Yeah. And, uh, and then Hoist was in the main one, and then Hickson in another one. And I don't know where the other one was. I mean, it was just, it was a lot. And then Horian came to me about 19, probably the beginning of 89. And he said, you know, if we're really going to, you know, we've been to New Jersey and New York and, and Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And he says, if we're really going to take this thing further, he says, I have to have a school. Yeah. So I said, I agree. 
And he says, Richard, he says, I'm missing one thing. I go, what's that? And yeah. I'm like, I said, yeah, I, I agree. You need money. And he goes, come on, man. Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's not what I was. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So, you know, there was guys that he had that were, that were, had more money than I did. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they had the belief that I did. So I said, you know, I can come up with, you know, like $40,000. And then I went over to my parents and I borrowed 20,000 from my parents and mm -hmm. they asked what it's for. And I said, you know, it's jujitsu. And I go, do you think it's a good idea? And I said, yeah, I said, you know, and they'd already, they'd been to some of the challenge things that we had done. Right. I mean, I mean, you guys have been, I mean, this is almost 10 years later, so I'm sure that you'd yeah. cross paths with the family and there's relationship and, and that's probably why they approached you because it's somebody they could trust, you know, or somebody that was vested that, that believed what was possible, you know. We could talk about that another time. But anyway, yes. I, I made the decision. I wanted to help out. Yeah. And, uh, and so we go to the bank. And the bank, you know, says, look, I'll loan you another 60 if I can show you. you so I went to the bank to meet the bank manager, say, yes, here's my check. To, he says, okay, then we'll loan you 60000 and And then we started looking for a location and found yeah. the one over on Carson Street. And the Gracie Academy was born. That's awesome. And, yeah. you know, we almost went out of business because before the UFC, I mean, see, that's the thing where people forget or they don't know now is because over in Torrance now, which is the main room is probably 6,000 square feet. Yeah. But, and they probably have within a 10 mile radius, five schools. Yeah. Back then we were the only thing happening and people still, I mean, how are they going to learn from a friend who learned from a friend? And they're still trying to do the private class thing and small little groups. It was tough. And we almost got, I remember the sheriffs coming in, almost shutting us down because we can't, couldn't pay the rent. Oh, wow. Tough times. And then, and then he met, Horian met Art Davey, was a student, and Art was a promoter. And they talked about, you know, the challenges that we've had. And we had the challenges there. But a small time thing, and it was selling in action. Yeah. And then they said, look, let's, and they came up with this thing of the UFC. And uh, I remember going over to the office because it was a block away from the academy. And I also invested, that was one of the early investors, as my parents were in the UFC. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So what was the total budget the first UFC was run on? Do you remember? Uh, you know, I have no idea what the budget was, but yeah. put it this way. I mean, I, I was fortunate because I was really the only guy outside of the family that went to, that they took with them to Parsippany, New Jersey, Hunter College, and Las Vegas. When Chuck Norris had his seminar in Vegas, yeah. you know, I was, I traveled with them because I was kind of the logistics guy. I got things, you know, handled like where we were going to stay, where we were going to train. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, I got to to see all this stuff early on. Yeah. And, uh, but it was still, you know, tough. And then we, when we went to the UFC, I mean, 
we didn't know what we were going to have, how many people were going to be there and how many we were right. going to sell. And all I know is that it went crazy after the first UFC. All of a sudden, we were having like maybe four to six guys in a group class. And, and I had just got certified before this. Mm -hmm. So I could teach classes too. And we went from maybe six guys to, to you know, 20 to 30 guys per class. And we went yeah, to which I mean, is great for the books. You know, it's like, hey, we got more students, you know, we can pay the rent. Um, but then the oh, logistics yeah. of having full classes, um, yeah. you know, what do you do with all these people? Yeah, that's one. And then right after that, then there was another UFC and then Hoist, you know, did that one. So all of a sudden it put us on the map and we had a bunch of guys coming up from Brazil shortly afterwards that were teaching jujitsu. Yeah. And I, I got, you know, it was, it was really awakening because I mean, in the early days, I had to like almost beg people to yeah. come take a class because yeah. they're like, well, what are you doing? Rolling around in pajamas. I mean, you know, yeah. They just, they don't understand. There's a disconnect, a uh, major disconnect. Yeah. And karate is where it's at. Everyone knows that stand-up arts, you know. Yeah, <laughs> striking. And that was just, especially in those days, I mean, because you got Bill Wallace, Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis. I mean, you got all these strikers. And, you know, and, you know the Bruce Lee era had kind of like kicked off the martial arts movies. And then you get into, uh, you know, just all these legends of the sport, like when kickboxing became a thing, whereas watching people punch and kick each other, um, you know, just became kind of the, the fad you know, well, maybe not fat, but just was popular at that time. And then it was like, hey, guys, let's go kind of wrestle each other, but not really wrestling with something like wrestling, you know, uh, right. difficult to explain. I mean, even when I was a kid, I can remember struggling with the disconnect of explaining MMA or grappling or jujitsu, you know, like I just I could never convey the ideas because they had no word pictures that gave them comprehension of what we were talking about. So it just looked foreign and uncomfortable to them, you know, just like, man, that doesn't look right. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you guys started the Academy. Um, you know, you're the financier, you guys are traveling all over the U S you're helping organize this, organize that. So tell us one of your travel stories that just is hilariously entertaining of this one time at this one place. Okay, Surely. well, the place that I was thinking about this before you asked, when we went down to uh, Las Vegas, uh -huh. you know, here we went to Vegas, we came down with, and there's a picture, I think, on my Facebook page uh, of myself, um, Horian, Chuck Norris, his business partner, Bob, do you know who Bob Wall is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Bob Wall, Hoyler, Hegan, I think Carlos Gracie was there. Henzo Gracie was there. Oh wow, um, that's a room. That's a room full of legends right there. Yeah, Helian Gracie, and I, there was a there was a total of about eleven guys, twelve in the picture. And this is nineteen eighty-eight. So when we were there, you know, Chuck invited them down and Horian wanted to put on a show for them for a seminar because he had a hundred of his black belts come in, you know, for a once a year thing in Las Vegas. 
Oh, wow. So they brought us down there. We stayed. And I remember meeting Chuck as I'm walking to the, to the, uh, the room in the hotel. And we talked, super nice guy. And we talked a little bit because he went down and met um, Elio and Hickson in Brazil, you know, maybe a few months to, I don't know, maybe a few months before that. Yeah. Anyways, so after the seminar, or maybe during a break, I'm not sure. Bob Wall was talking with Horian and he was, and I was kind of, you know, it was kind of like a, a triad. Those two are together and I'm about, let's see, I would think it was about six feet away. That social distancing was, you know, right. I was practicing it then, but <laughs> yeah. I just enough to hear what was, what they were saying. Yeah. Just trying to be like, Hey, what do y'all got cooking up? Yeah. So Bob was saying how he really thought that, you know, jujitsu is very nice. He really likes it. But in a real situation. If it was for real. Oh, man. Yeah. Made if it was for real. Words. There was a guy named Dennis Alexia who was a kickboxing champion back then. This was 88. Mm -hmm. Or even Gene LaBelle he was talking about. And he said, if this really came down to it, he said, you guys wouldn't have a chance. And we already did. We had the, the guys. They stood up and, you know. They, although they could say we weren't really trying, like I've heard a zillion times before, but he said if it was for real. Here's that picture, I think. Oh, okay, yes, there you go. Yeah. I was like, what happened to the... Uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you had said that picture, so I jumped on there, so that was, that was the big seminar. Yeah, Helson, Hickson, uh, um god i forgot There's a lot of them though hoist yeah for sure yeah yeah it was good Carlos. memories though good memories yeah yeah anyways yeah um so he says yeah you know it wouldn't really wouldn't hold up so i'm listening i'm looking at horian and horian's shaking his head like yeah and i'm like what the hell you're you're <laughs> not you're not you're not saying anything, you know, and I'm thinking to myself. And so I, so I kind of like leaned in and I said, so let me see if I get this right. So if it was for real, someone like Dennis Alexio against someone like Hickson, Dennis would destroy him. And he goes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Oh, and, and I said, I have $10,000 right now that I'm willing to put up to see this happen <laughs> oh, God. of my own money. Money where your mouth was. I didn't. I didn't say anything to Horian. I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, "Let's do it." And Bob looks at me and he goes, and he looks at Horian. He goes, "Who the hell are you?" And Horian goes, "Oh, Bob, let me introduce you to my longtime student and friend, Richard Bressler." Blah blah blah. You know. So you know, he shakes my hand and he says, "Put your arm up like this." So I put my arm up, and he backhands it. I mean, just like whack. I mean, you can hear that little slap. Yeah. And he goes, did that hurt? I said, yeah, it stung. And he goes, that's nothing compared to how hard these guys hit. <laughs> and I said, that's nice. But I said, the bet still stands. Wow. And, you know, he, he was just reacting to what his, you know, that was his reality. Because that's he all had he done straight yeah. nerves. Yeah, I mean, I mean it probably wasn't even uh, it probably wasn't even what you'd consider malicious or arrogant. It was probably just like this is how I see the world, and it might have been ignorant, 
but it you know it was just like that's all that he knew was one plus one equals two and and this is this is the reality of it right and, so so the uh i walked away because he was so pissed and i walked into the bathroom thinking to myself oh man i i screwed things up you know here that you know we're trying to make these guys friends and and i mess yeah. it up so here i am like going on oh, what am i going to do to make this right Hoist comes in the bathroom about a minute after I'm in there, you know, and I'm sitting there going, with, you know, thinking that I did bad. And Hoist comes up to me and he goes, way to go, Richard. And I was like, <laughs> so, and we got back and we kept going back and forth with phone calls, trying to arrange this and they stopped calling back. Absolutely. Yeah. So they probably did the you know, research, did the research, you know, because, you know, what's the upside? You know, there's like, because there's a huge chance of losing. You're most likely not going to make it. We've done the research. It's a weird, it's, you know, I mean, I have, I'm not surprised at all to where, you know, they're like, uh, we're probably just going to get embarrassed by some weird unknown thing that the world's not aware of. Because it's one thing if like, you know, somebody famous shows up and they fight it out and end up losing like a little bit there. But at this time, I, you know, you guys are probably still relatively unknown to the world, you know, pre-UFC where it's like, oh, yeah, I fought this guy, and he beat me up extremely easy and made me tap out, you know, wearing a karate uniform. I, I don't know what happened. I mean, it wouldn't have ended well for him, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, and also because their rules, they're used to fighting in a structured rule thing. They're not used to doing, like, a no-holds-barred type of thing. Yeah, no Valley Tudo for them. Yeah, so so it, it never happened, and, you know, and – and, you know, before this happened, you know, back when I was a blue belt, back before I really became the believer in jujitsu that I had become, I remember Horian said, hey, we're going to an American jujitsu school today. And mm, this, was, yeah. this had to be back, I mean, probably 1980 or 81. Which at and, that time, American jujitsu probably meant standing wrist locks punching choreographed moves and i'm like going wow yeah and yeah. I, when I watched the choreo i go what the hell is this but you know i didn't want to be disrespectful so we go into the school and here i just you know i have a fresh blue belt i mean you know it's not really training very often once or twice a week helping yeah. out with a class you know like whenever he was teaching i i always wanted to be down there to help so even though I only got like one or two classes a week, I was helping, you know, so learning the moves. So Horian was the only black belt. And then I was his like, here, I'm like his upper belt. <laughs> yeah, you're the, the high rank of, of a blue belt. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of uh, white belts and maybe another blue belt or so. And he says, he says, okay, Horian, he says, you and your black belts come with me. Everyone else, you know, just go over there with my other guys. So I start to go over there with the other guys, Horian dressing by the sleeve and goes, come with me. <laughs> and I whisper in, I said, Horian, he said blue belts. And he said, trust me, you know, you, you know more than these guys. And I'm like, oh man, like yeah, what is what he is doing that? to me? Yeah, it's like, I'm only a blue belt. This guy called for the black belts and it's like, oh. <laughs> and he's wearing a black belt around his waist. That's all I could see. I was like going, well, man, that guy's a black yeah. belt. You know, and I knew how good Horian was. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, Horan says, hey, what you do is very nice. He didn't want to say, hey, you know, what you do looks like crap because it's Korea. You know, no one's going to punch like that. Yeah. But, but he was very diplomatic. And he says, but what would you do if you were laying down and someone was mounted on top of you? He says, why don't you lay down my friend? And he says, Richard, mount on top of the guy. So I'm going like, whoa. He wasn't going to do it. He was saying, here's my blue belt who's yeah. mounting on top of you. Now, how would you get out of there? So the guy reaches up from the bottom. I'm mounted on top. Reaches up and does this. Yep. Puts pressure. So, and I could feel it. But yeah. I was down low. So I got a little higher where he couldn't reach. Yeah. And the guy went crazy. Just kind of took me and started grabbing my gi and started to throw me up. As he threw me, I grabbed his wrist and caught his arm. Yeah. As soon as I caught the arm, Horian goes... And I'm like, so I, which I knew meant let go. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, what? And, you know, and then I walked over to him and he says, I don't want to show these guys anything. I just want to see if they have anything technical. Yep. So I said, okay. Looking I knew I had it. So he says, okay, now Richard, you lay down. Now, why don't you hold Richard down? So he holds me down. This guy's like clamping onto me, holding my wrists, you know. And I grabbed his wrist, trapped his leg, rolled him out in like a second. Yeah. And then I'm in his guard and the guy goes crazy again. And Horian says, okay, good enough. He says, look, for whatever happens after this is a different thing. My point is, I'm showing you how we got out of this so easily without using power. And that's when I went like, whoa, this jujitsu stuff is, you know, we yeah. do know more than these guys. Yeah. So it was, and my whole point in telling these things, it's so much different now because we don't have to prove the, the validity of jujitsu. Yeah. No, it's already done. I mean, it just, like people understand the truth, you know, you know, like they're able to see like, this is functional, this works. And there's always that debate that lives on of which is better and everything, which I mean, for my personal thing is I go back to like, you know, you can't be in one lane. You got to be in all lanes because all things work sometimes and some things work some other time. You know, I just, there's so many caveats that, but there are some universal truths. It's like being under full mount, trying to strike somebody on top of you is, you know, probably a bad idea versus if I learn a, a bridge and roll or the, you know, like there's, there's things that people learn and they're educated now because the UFC kicked it off, you know, to start this evolution of martial arts resurgence, you know, um, of measuring efficacy, you know? So I just, yeah, cause the stories are fun and back in the day, but really, I mean, it's one of education because until you understand, as I remember the first time that I ever was part of any kind of grappling scenario, I was a black belt in traditional art. I'm in a school and, you know, I think I know something. My friends had been training and they're like, Caleb, you got to check this out. What would you do? It's the same story. What would you do here? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> nothing happened <laughs> you know? yeah exactly and and nothing happened and I was just blown away I was like oh man I gotta do some more of this you know because it was just I was hooked because I was able to see that the the picture was bigger than what I perceived it was the biggest thing I took from it um and when I was younger I was a little bit more resentful of my traditional training but as I got older and I learned that 
there's value in some of that traditional training and other styles if you just apply it correctly, you know, and I, but I was in an environment that that wasn't happening. You know, we were not trying to be, you know, well-educated, well-rounded. It was just a guy that had gotten a black belt that knew some taekwondo, some karate, you know, it, it wasn't well-rounded, educated, something that was made to actually defend yourself. And, and so I learned those lessons later, but, but no, I, I'm sure that you guys probably ran into that often, you know, of those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there was a few guys that, you know, would come over and uh, train and that's what, you know, there's, I see all sorts of stuff like they talk about uh, Aikido, mm -hmm. you know, being, you know, like, you know, there's some people that are so glued into the old style and they haven't yeah. really opened up to even gone into a jujitsu school, but they see it and they think this and they'll point out like what's better. And I remember we uh, probably in the um, gosh, mid eighties, because we're in Torrance, there's El Camino College out there, which is a, a junior college. Yeah. And there was a guy that was teaching Aikido there who was a black belt, super nice guy, Mitsu Yamashita. And we went oh. and did a... Yeah. We, we did a um, oh, demonstration. Yeah. And so Mitsu happened to be at that demonstration. And he said, yeah, he said, I can really see it. And Mitsu he got really good really fast. Yeah. Because, I mean, I had started like a few years before him, and all of a sudden, at one point, he was training a lot, and him and I, we got, we were like this. Yeah. And, you know, he had his purple belt, you know, shortly after I got mine, which was, you know, I'm like, well, how can the guy get it so fast? He was just, you know, you I was- You had to learn. Yeah, I, I was slow. I mean, I, oh. I wasn't in any hurry, and- <laughs> Yeah, you could, you could chalk it up to that, but I mean, also, like, there's, when people understand how to learn and absorb information, especially if they do it humbly, a lot of times they will accelerate faster. Me and Toffer talked about this a little bit with some of the people that are highly successful in other parts of their life. And then they start jujitsu and they seem to progress fairly quickly, you know, because success leaves clues and, and they know how to apply that in their jujitsu journey. So right. uh, yeah, cause I, I actually have an Aikido black belt and I had it before I ever did jujitsu. And you know, I, I feel like it kind of, they complimented because all I started to see, especially when I got into some different styles later on was just like, they're all circles and leverage and movement. So that's kind of how I looked at it, you know? So I looked at it, you know, not finite, but kind of macro of like, here's how the body physically works. And here's how you apply the leverage and, and these circles and movements. And, and the BJJ, I feel like answered the question of the barrier. Because most of the standing styles, there's no barrier. You know, you move, I move, and I do this lock. And it's, you know, like you said, the choreograph. But when you put in a barrier such as the floor, and then like whenever the octagon got started, and now you have a barrier such as a wall that was actively used, discussed, you know, it just kind of changed it. Um, but that's awesome that you guys met a martial artist that was truly, you know, a student at heart. That was like, yes, this is awesome. I want to learn more of it. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And, and you, you spoke earlier about... Uh enter the dragon yeah you know or bruce lee yeah and everyone or most people if they haven't seen it should really see that movie because i mean it was it, first of all it's an entertaining movie but the three stars in that movie were bruce lee jim saxon and john kelly mm -hmm. do you know who those guys are i don't know who the other two are now okay well if you watch the movie jim kelly was the black guy with the big afro 
Okay, yeah, and, yeah, okay. Yeah. And John Kelly was the white guy, you know, that he was on a TV series after, you know, or before that, yeah. maybe. Okay. Anyways, John Kelly and Jim Kelly, I mean, John Saxon and Jim Kelly were both students of Orient. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Cool. So, Jim Kelly early on, and John, uh, I know, John Saxon early on and Jim Kelly later. But you know Bruce Lee would have been there if he would have lived. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because he was all over that. Yeah. Anything, yeah. you know, the, the reinvention, you know, because I feel like people get caught up in like, oh, we invented this, you know, or like I thought up this technique when it's really just a reinvention of theory almost, of just like a different approach, a different way. And then you find these ways that are much more effective and much more efficient. But then as the game evolves or, you know, as our world around us evolves, you know, things change. Um, it's just like the brake systems on cars. They've changed generationally just because circumstances are changing. you got to evolve with the circumstances. And that's what I feel like BJJ has done such a good job of is it has evolved so much uh -huh. over the 40 years. I feel like it is just viscerally staying in step with changes. Like it's still very nimble even though it's this worldwide phenomenon, um, you know, and I've been, like, years that it's been here. I'll say again, I'm sorry, what? Over the 40 years it's been here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just since it's been here. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Cause I'm sure that even before that, I mean like with, you know, Mitsumaeda and all that transitions, I can only imagine what it would have been like to be a fly on the wall then when it was, you know, taking judo Nawaza and trying to be like, well, what if we did this? And, I mean, I love seeing the old judo pictures that are basically like a lot of the modern BJJ positions, you know, I always get a kick out of that. That's like, man, these guys were thinking about this. I mean, that's 70, 80, 90 years ago. Um, I just, I love the history part of it. It's just, it's really neat. It's, it's right. I mean, like, yeah. So you guys started the Academy, travel around doing seminars. Um, so the UFC happens. After UFC, the school starts to fill up. Was there like a a transition there where it was like, man, this is becoming a thing. We need to start planning an infrastructure. We need to start coming up with a plan. Like, uh, was there like a big pivot point or was it one of those look around? Well, looks like this is a big deal. I guess we better find some answers. Um, well, you know, we, we stayed, like the academy started in 1990 um and i, I left in 1996 mm -hmm. summer of 96 had a uh had a you know a falling out with with the horian so i i left there and and they were really going big at that point as a matter of fact they kind of outgrew the school mm -hmm. because we when we originally started it was a it was a downstairs and it was one, one um, kind of big room, which would only get like 12 guys. Yeah. And then a, like a smaller room that would maybe fit six to eight in the back, a couple of private rooms and the locker room. But after the UFC or maybe even shortly before the UFC, we started to get a little bit busy just before it. And then there was an upstairs to this building with a pretty big room that we could get 50 guys in. Oh, wow. Okay. So he rented that space out. And then he, we, he outgrew that. 
and then moved over to Artesia Boulevard, which was, you know, a couple miles down the street. And, you know, so it started getting big. And then, and their tr big training room was 4,000 square feet. I mean, it was huge. Yeah. So, you know, it, it really, it just exponentially grew. And, and then, you know, Henner and Hidan were developing the Gracie University, which for all of the people that originally started being haters out there, I happened to, to see early on because remember I got trained by their old man. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talk about lineage. Yeah. I mean, I, I got it straight, you know, not, I mean, Horian's arguably the best teacher in the family. So to be trained by him and then to see what the boys have done, I mean, they've really made it a very solid, a solid uh, place to learn. And right now it's really coming in handy because oh, yeah. they can yeah. still get their lessons. And, you know, people have been joking. They're like, every instructor in the planet's like, don't watch YouTube. It's a waste of time. Coronavirus hits. Hey, watch my YouTube and check out my classes. <laughs> You know, so I mean, it's definitely it's forcing a lot of uh, it's forcing a lot of growth with a lot of people. I mean, but it's still a visceral thing. Like, I mean, you still need physical interaction because, like, my start of jujitsu was watching VHS tapes, a few friends training, you know, in the garage and and just you know, in the living room, and and we didn't have access to any instructors early on, and so there was the educational component, which of course wasn't very good because you're watching a videotape of some guy and it was copied like six times. So it had like the sparkly lines across it, um, you know, and then we would physically try to do the moves. And then when we were around a high level instructor and we would videotape our private lessons, that would help, you know, and being around him and just having that physical interaction with somebody that can physically do the move and show it to you correctly helps. I mean, cause you'll never be able to replace, but you'll always be able to supplement you yeah, know, because it is a cerebral game as well, but it's also a physical game, you know, and, and I know they came under fire by a lot of people, but, you know, I think that's now it's kind of past and I, you know, it's just parts, there's always growing pains in evolution. Um, oh yeah. But you know, I got a chance to, to see, I mean, like there's questions about what the history was like in Brazil. Mm -hmm. You know, certain guys say, well, you know, this and that, and they're not really, I mean, and then there's, in, in amongst the family itself. So, but, you know, I respond to, to the, the haters out there and the other people as far as how things really happen in Brazil. I said, look, I don't know what happened in Brazil. I only know what happened from 1979 till the present. Yeah. You know, I mean, I went to Brazil in 1981, you know, because after, after, you know, seeing Horian go a couple times and talking about his family and this, and I met, you know, a few guys, I said, you know, I really want to, I want to see what this Brazil thing is about. So I went in 1981 and, uh, you guys got to Rio. Yeah, I went to Rio okay. and I mean, I got picked up from the airport by none other than Elio Gracie and Helsinki. That's awesome. So here I'm getting picked up from the grandmaster, you know, and, and uh, seeing what a maniac he was behind the wheel, <laughs> because who's going to pull him over, you know? He's... So, right. you know, I, I, I stayed with uh, a friend of mine 
His uh, name is uh, Romero Cavalcante, who, who runs Alliance, um, I guess, out of Atlanta. Um, his nickname is Jacare, and he was good friends with Halls. Okay. So when I yeah, went I'm to Brazil. Yeah, I'm familiar with Jacare, yeah. Yeah. So I went to Brazil. I, I met uh, Halls. I watched Halls compete against a, uh, a, ju a, a judo champion who came into the school, and Halls kind of had his way. You know, they were okay standing up. But when, you know, but the guy didn't really dominate Halls because Halls was so innovative. But when they got to the ground, Halls just, I um, mean, it was it was embarrassing almost. Yeah. To see the the dominance, and I met Hoyler when I was there, and you know, I went in to train, and here's this guy that's probably thirteen years old, maybe a hundred and twenty pounds at the most. And not that I'm a big guy, I, I, you know, I, maybe it was five pounds heavier, so I was 150. Yeah, but yeah. here, you know, thinking, and I'm a blue belt. And, I know things. Yeah. Go ahead and pass this little kid's guard. So I'm like, you know, smash pass, just really stacked nice and tight. And just as soon as I, just before I can establish my position across the side, he puts me in guard. Elbow skates puts me in guard. And I'm like, okay. That was lucky. Let's do it again. Yeah. Did it again. Did it again. And I went, son of a bitch, I cannot pass this kid's guard. Yeah. And he, he was so small. So, you know, it, it, it was, you know, everything is so much different back then. Because now, for the evolution, like you said, the change, I mean, we had, there's probably, 25% of the moves that we have now. I mean, there was one way, no arm and guillotines, just one way to do every move. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's the way I taught it. And all of a sudden you're starting to see this and that. I'm like, crap. And then leg locks and Yeah, the creativity has just grown. And, and I feel like that's what makes it such a unique style because with striking, you know, there's a lot of innovation as well, but the, the byproduct of the striking a lot of times is mileage, you know, like you just, you can't get too many miles in striking because you take so much damage, your body's abused and hit and the older you get, like the harder it is. And if you have good partners, you can, you can still train well. And, but with jujitsu, like you can still pressure test to a degree, you know, on a fairly regular basis, you know, and, and the body, like you're going to get bumps and bruises, but you can consistently, train with a fairly high level of resistance which i think opens up the ability for creativity you know where these guys are just like different angle new movement you know this body type that body type is because you get to go out and pressure test all the time you know of course you know when you do the pressure testing without the strikes you get lots of miles you know and you have to adjust for that if, if someone's going to transition to mma where it's hey now they're punching kicking on the ground it's going to change some of the details but you get so much attribute development by training that way. You know, I mean, you take a guy and let him train classical jujitsu for 20 years. Then you go spend a year or two of him doing grappling with strikes. He's going to catch up pretty quick, you know? Um, oh, yeah. and I think that that's, I really feel like that's what's helped the expression of the style to change and evolve so much is, is the pressure test, the free rolls, you know, just getting to explore. So. And, and remember, back when I was doing it, too, we, we also 
it wasn't all just, you know, kind of sportive stuff. It was like we always included in our class every, you know, pretty regularly, you know, punching, slapping. So, you, right. so you're always aware of where it's going to come from, mm -hmm. which is the way that I teach today. I'm always teaching, you know, the things are, you know, you got to be aware of, you know, you get somebody. Because back when we did, I did a few competitions early on, but there was slamming allowed. So mm -hmm. if someone's in your guard, they could lift you up, slam you. That's, yeah. that's been done because of how litigious our society is. But Absolutely. we learned early on, if we had somebody in a triangle or, or if they're in our garden, they lift us up, let go. Be done. Yeah. Don't take the slam. Yeah. yeah. Don't take the slam. I mean, even though you can do a fall break if you can, if, but if the guy lifts you up high, I don't care how good of a fall break you do, you start coming down, man. Yeah. It's that Quentin Jackson. Like, he's the one that educated the world when Rampage slammed that guy in pride, knocked him unconscious. Everybody's like, man, that's, that looks kind of dangerous, you know? Um, or... Or Matt Hughes, uh, yep. That uh, forgot Carlos Newton. Yep, I. Oh man, oh Carlos. We had him in a triangle. He had he him in a triangle up. set, and he slammed him. And and Matt Hughes, as he was falling, was out. Yep. But Carlos had enough power. Yeah, yeah, had enough power. It just, and those are the things that, when you look at something that becomes a mainstream hobby those are going to be some of the concessions that are going to be made every class is not going to be a fight for your life there's going to be rules and and regulations and things that get set up so that the thing can exponentially propagate like that's going to come with it because we don't really live in an environment anymore where it's like hey you need to go train this most dangerous martial art style so that you can go out and protect the village you know or your family you know, and everything's uh, a, a to the death, physical, scary, you know, it, it's basically, it's a hobby that has byproducts of true self-defense and it's in there. But, you know, what I'm kind of saying is it just, it's family friendly where everybody can train and we can't measure whenever we make concessions so that everybody can train. That measurement of that activity cannot be the full value of the overall art and style. Like, there's more in there. You just can't do all of it in the beginning. I look at old traditional martial arts. Old traditional martial arts, you know, you train left leg, left leg forward, right leg forward. You did a lot of kata and all these movements, and people were, you know, very critical of it. But if you go back to that ancient time when it's like, look, I have a, I have a kid that at five years old starts training, and I need him to be prepared for battle at age 16. Anything in between was kind of irrelevant. It's like, well, I don't care how he looks between. It just at age 16, I need him to be able to help protect the village or protect, you know, be part of the army. So it wasn't a measure every three months. You know, it wasn't like, how good am I at six months? How good am I at a year? It was just like, we need you to learn everything. And in 10 or 15 years, then it will be alive, living, breathing, and, you know, brutal. And I feel like that's what's changed a little bit with our martial arts kind of training is it's like every month is like, am I better than last month? You know, am I better than that guy that's been training three months? And it's lost the, you know, I just need to get to the end. So at the end, I'll have this full rounded education. It's where am I at now and where am I at compared to everybody else? Um, you know, and I don't think there's a way around that, but I feel, I feel like that's where the, which is better. This is the way to do it. That's the way to do it. 
you know, I just looked at the end result. At the end result, protect yourself, protect your family. You can handle the strikes, you know, introduction of weapons to a degree. Just, it depends on your training methodology and you spend a right, lifetime right. chasing it and you'll never truly achieve it really, you know, but it's the pursuit. It's the journey, you know. And, and also, and I might add really, um, as we, how old are you? Ah, uh, that was a good question. 81, 38, I think. Okay. Yeah. That was just about the age that I really stopped doing a lot of like hard spars. Mm -hmm. um, probably maybe I could have been like 36, 37, but you know, my body, it couldn't take the, I mean, I wasn't made one of those guys who trains every day. I mean, I, I also started studying, you know, after, after living with Horian for a year and realizing that my diet really needed help, you know, I started really studying about diet. I told you earlier I was down, I interned in a health school in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so I, I started studying about, you know, because I wanted, I want to preserve my body because there's guys younger than me that have had back surgeries, neck surgeries, yeah. shoulder surgeries, knee surgeries. and I have personally, I met a guy back in 1992 that uh, has given me, like, he, he's a chiropractor, but he doesn't do any traditional chiropractic. He does this, this technique that really saved my muscles. Mm -hmm. I, in turn, learned how to do it. So, but I see guys that have had, you know, the kind of surgeries and realizing that we need to adapt and alter the way that we're training. I can't train the way that I did yeah. 30 years ago. And, and I teach guys that differently than I did 20 years ago because I said, look, I want you to be able to, to handle this. And I want, I, you to, I want you to be able to do this in your 40s. Yeah. You just, yeah. You're, you're elongating our shelf life, which, yeah. you know, and longevity becomes the discussion. And, you know, and that's one thing that a lot of my mentors and coaches, you know, they're like, man, Caleb, just don't do what I did, you know, and because that's how I came up, you know, as a younger man was a lot of the martial arts styles I was in. It was very hardcore, you know, like Muay Thai, like I learned a traditional where it was just, you beat on each other till the body is tough. You know, you, you, you just go through it till the pain goes away. You don't know any better. And luckily I found, you know, my coach Dring in my 20s. And he was all about hardcore training, but there were some things that he would adjust where he's like, man, your body can't take that for 20 years, but it can take this for 20 years. So he would just get creative, um, right, right. you know, and even with the jujitsu, like, uh, cause he found it later in life too. And I remember I used to do a lot of inversions and when in my early thirties, I, I heeded the advice of mentors and, and they were like, look, you can do that now, but if you don't adjust that, you know, it's going to cost you through injury. And so I spent two years trying to remove inversions from my game. And it was the most frustrating two years because all my stuff quit working. And, yeah, you know, and yeah. but, but I did it before injury and I've been blessed with my back and my neck, you know, and, but I heeded the advice and I adjusted the training, but it was a painful two years on my pride though. <laughs> it really was. Oh yeah. Well, you yeah, know, really that's was. where the ego, you know, you got to really learn how to tame that. Yeah. Got to let it go. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we all get sucked into, you know, here I'm 68 and, you know, I'll be teaching a class 
and there's somebody who kind of wants to, you know, you know, they're, they're not quite a believer or whatever. Yeah, they, they want to test the waters. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the time I, I have a guy that's a purple belt that's been with me for a few years now. And I just said, I said, look, go with him. Okay. You yeah. Know? Yeah. He'll, he'll show you what you need to know. Like, yeah, if you got any questions that that'll answer them, you know? Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's definitely a thing. And, and it has changed. You know, you bring that up. That's something I hadn't thought about in a long time is because 20 years ago, the, the dojo storm test your stuff. Is it really real? Like that was a real part of like, cause we were a very small club, but very regularly people would be like, well, I just want to see if this works. And they wanted to go for real. They're like, no, let's go. I just want to see if it works. And oh, I, yeah. you know, and you forget about that. That's like, that wasn't that long ago that that was just very common. Where now people, just, just, there's so much publicity about it. People are educated so much better that they understand. They're like, oh yeah, no, this works. This is, this is real. It's not new. It's not, you know, it just, it's a different culture now, which I think is more fun. Um, I really do because you get to get into the instruction and the teaching and building people up way faster than having to go in and tear people down to show them that they need to listen to you. Um, right, right. You know, I just, I feel like it's so much healthier now and things are growing. So if you had to give some perspective of what, what does jujitsu now look like for you as an individual with your past and your experience now? Cause you know, you said it impacted, it saved your life. Um, you know, and, and it's done that for a lot of people and a lot of stories you hear about that. And now that you've had the last 40 years to kind of sit on it, you know, where do you feel like your growth has come from and what do you feel like it, it kind of means to you now? Um, first of all, I'm, I'm very happy to see that jujitsu is, uh, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. I was talking to uh, Chris Howder a couple months ago. And Chris, you know, and I remember, and I remember, because, you know, did you see the uh, documentary Roll? I haven't yet. Is it, a, uh, yeah, no, I haven't got to watch that Oh, yet. man, you got to watch that. Where's it at? On YouTube. Oh, Just okay, okay, okay. Type in R-O-L-L. Okay. And uh, I like to call it my movie. Yeah. It's not my yeah. movie, but, I, but I'm in it, uh, you know. Yeah. So, and he was just saying, you know, back then, you know, when Chris started and when I started, Jiu-jitsu, it was kind of like, you know, once you were like a purple belt, you kind of feel like you had a little secret. No one, you know, was going to mess with you or you really had like a weapon that no one else had. And now everybody has it or a lot of people have it. Yeah. So it's, it's, I, I'm happy to see it take on such popularity. On the other hand, I see some of the instruction, some of the school, some of the horror stories that I hear yeah. because whether it be lack of their teaching or the kind of person that they are, yeah. you know, it's, it I came from very traditional, the Brazilian way. In other words, you know, help the person learn this art. Don't come in and get beat up in a school yeah you know come in and, and and do that and also think about it primarily as a self-defense and and i don't have a problem with competition you know even though i kind of say things but not just competition learn the self-defense and if you want to compete great 
compete, but just be aware of that because it's, it, the roots are, you wanna know how to defend yourself in the street. Yeah. You know, period. So, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, almost a bittersweet thing, but I'm still glad that it's out there. And, you know, and if people have questions about where they're training, especially if they're in a big metropolitan city, go, go to different schools, check it out, talk to other people. Find, yeah, find something that fits you. I always tell people, I'm like, you need to try different schools when you're trying to pick one or find a place to train because you're going to find an atmosphere and a coach and a team that you connect with, you know, that your morals, your values, or your goals at least are kind of in line. Like you're going to find where you fit, um, you know, because there's a lot of different structures and cultures out there and a lot of different influences and, and people have different goals. Cause like the thing that brought me into martial arts was self-defense, you know, but now I love sport, fought MMA, fought Muay Thai, you know, did a bunch of jiu-jitsu tournaments when I was younger. Like I love the sport because that builds the attributes that help me connect to the reality based training even more, you know, because I can't go out and be like, Hey, we're going to go fight to the death with my buddies. I can maybe <laughs> do it once or twice. You know, and then over the years, you learn that the body can't take too much abuse without really long-term effects, you know, with concussions and bones and joints and ligaments and knees. So, you know, we just try to pair as close as we can, you know, to get that attribute development. I, I always joke, I'm like, man, you'll see every top fighter in the world jump rope every day of their life, but they'll never take a jump rope into the ring or the cage, you know, because it's like, it's attribute development. And you have to look at an art and a style from a well-rounded, broad perspective to appreciate all the moving parts, you know, to where you can understand, I mean, if we're doing a shrimp drill down the floor, if I come in and that's the only snapshot you see, you're confused and like, what is, you know, what's that got to do with protecting yourself from people beating you up? We have to deliver context, you know, just like when we do flow rolling or we do technical drills, Versus when we do free rolling or free rolling with light strikes or something, you know, like you said, the self-defense aspect. It just, you can't write the paragraph if you don't know the alphabet. And, and that's the piece that, especially from an American perspective, I feel like we're very impatient and we're very, you know, quick to judge things that we don't want to look at in totality. We just want to look at one piece of it. You show me a clip of Hoist beating up people in UFC, oh, it makes sense. It's the best. But then you show clips of like the movement drills or fundamental drills suddenly, well, that doesn't look like it'll work, you know, cause it's out of context. Um, and as it grows, like you said, there's more that can be taken out of context that sometimes I think gets propagated out of context just cause they don't know any better. Right. Like you know, this is how I learned it. I saw this thing. Now I want to start teaching these classes. And cause like for me, I was teaching grappling as, as a blue belt in my gym because we're primarily strikers because I just, there was nobody else. I had no choice, you know, as the, as it grows and it propagates, there's going to be, you know, more stories of, you know, stuff that kind of goes wrong or just bad people as instructors. It's going to happen, you know, cause it's growing, but I do feel that the, the core of the art and the style and, and what it represents is definitely being spread more than the, uh, than the other stuff is for sure. You know, um, because, right. you know, there's a lot more good than bad. And, and I feel like that jujitsu has really expanded and, and grown. And I, and I feel like it's getting well represented, um, you know, for the most part. And there's always going to be those stories. But Oh, absolutely. So, it's, it's, you know, 
I mean, who would have thought, you know, when Horian came over, of course, he always tells me, you know, he said, I, I said, did you ever think it would get this big? And he said, yes. He believed, yeah. You know, because he told me, he said, look, what's in Brazil stays in Brazil. He said, you bring it to the U.S., it'll go out to the world. Yeah. And he, and he also said, look, he said, you show it to the Americans. And with their work ethic, the way that they want to train, he says, they'll start being in the gym, they'll lift weights, they'll do, and, and you see, you see some of these huge guys who also learn jujitsu, yeah. you know, that are like, you know, giving smaller guys like me, all I want to be able to do yeah. is just defend myself. That's the way I, te I teach a basic, you know, like guys, I said, before you attack, and this is probably one of the biggest things that I see in traditional schools because there is a big emphasis on competition on the majority. So they're teaching, you have a certain amount of time to do it, attack, 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 attack. And I'm telling my guys, I said, guys, and, but I've told them this since I was, you know, cause I started teaching as a blue belt too. Mm -hmm. And, but I, and I would coach my students when I was purple and brown, when they were competing, I said, look, you have six minutes. The first three minutes, let the guy go crazy. You just defend, sit back, defend, 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 and you just keep an eye on me. At the three-minute mark, you're going to see me snap my fingers. Then you turn it on. Let the guy tire out. And it was so successful because these guys would come in and burn out, and all they would be doing is defending, and they'd look at me going, it's a time, it's a time. I'm going like, just, you know, calm down, calm down. And all of a sudden, you know, at the time, and they turned on, and that's what I how I still teach. I said, look, if you get into a confrontation in the street, and because I teach it at Krav Maga, a lot of times what they show before they come into my class is they get on their back, and it's fight for your life, kick, kick, punch, do whatever you got to do, get away. And I says, but if you don't get away and you exhaust yourself in that first 30 seconds, now you're in trouble. Yeah. So I like what Henner had, has said, and the boys, Henner and Hiran, you know, like when I'm in my, on my back, I says, attack all you want, I'm going to defend. You know, whether it be punches or what, I said, I'm going to stay and defend. And when I get to the top, I don't look for the submission. I said, I look for holding on. And like what they call, I think they call it the 90-second rule or the 100-second rule. If you can stay there mounted and just hold that position with hooks, the neck hug, whatever, for 100 seconds, let the guy tire up, then you can start to go for it. But there's no, there's such an emphasis on like attack, attack, attack. And that's the thing that, and even in the UFC, when I've seen, like I've seen Brian Ortega, I've seen Chrome Gracie. Look, those guys are great fighters. If I was their coach, they'd probably fire me. <laughs> but, but, you know, when I saw Crone, like after his fight, I forgot, it was Cub Swanson. Uh, it was the one down in Tampa, right? Yeah, where he just, he took a lot of punishment. Yeah. And he proved how freaking tough he is. But that's not what you want. And his training partners are the Diaz brothers, of course. That's their yeah. style. Correct. But 
he kept attacking, as did Brian in some of the fights that he lost. And I'm like, you know, and they say, Richard, you have a certain amount of time to do it and you'll get let go from the UFC. Sure. And I said, but at least use more of our principles. Let the guy come to you instead of you coming to them because their striking skills are better than yours. Yeah. So, you know, being in a yeah, being in a promotion, I think, has definitely changed how a lot of the fighters approach the the fights. You know, because like you said, you know, like you get cut, you got to be exciting. You know, like it's much more of entertainment than it is like protect yourself, longevity, get out with as little damage as possible. Because I mean, that's the goal. You know, I was like, I don't want to get damaged, but you know, whenever that's a paycheck or you're trying to be exciting and and I mean, just the hype. I mean, you're you're all over the world. You're on television, and it's just you know that composure's tough. And yeah, it's it, it's tough sometimes. But you know, when I'm sitting on the couch quarterbacking, it's all I'm like, why did you just do this? And uh, right. I guess, I, and I've talked. I I actually I said something to Brian probably uh, last spring, and I said, how long? How much longer do you want to fight? And I said, aren't you concerned about your your head and stuff? And he, and he goes, yeah, but I love fighting. And I said, okay, well, yeah. you know, because he doesn't need to fight. He's got a big enough name in jujitsu where he could probably be successful teaching, doing seminars, not having to work that hard. But yeah. he loves to fight. And Crone doesn't need to fight either. So, and I'm just, I always think because of the brain injury type of thing. It's real. Yeah, it's, it's real. And these guys are talented. I know they want to prove something, but they don't have to prove. I mean, like, Hickson proved it. The other guys proved it. Like Henner has said, the, the, other, the other generation, that, that was the fighting thing. Now everybody's learning it, so it's not the same. We were kind of comparing styles. Now they're, they're kind of learning. Yeah. That kind of, they are. But you tell a 20-year-old martial arts athlete, oh, you don't need to be tough and beat everybody up. It's like, good luck with that, man. Yeah. That's, uh, we're just, we're bred with it, you know. And yeah, get that old guy out of here, okay. Yeah, it's like, what does he know? Ah, you know, I just, because for me, like, I always love the competition, especially MMA. Like, I don't know. And I always tell people, like, I never enjoyed hurting people or it was never like, oh, I want to beat them up. I just enjoyed the test. So I was always really appreciative of my training partners and opponents because I got to test myself against, you know, the top of the food chain with all these tools and anything could go. It was just such a rush. Um, and it definitely, you know, is an addiction that just, it, it's hard to find things that scratch that itch. It really is. So it's, but it was good. And I know what you're saying. Cause I've, I've had to talk to fighters over the years when it was time to maybe be done. And that, you know, and I always let them decide and I just kind of help them figure that out because I still want right. to see them hurt and injured where like they have kids, they have families. And I'm like, man, it's not worth it. It's not worth it of yeah, you not yeah. being able to be with your family or, you know, be physically able and, and enjoy the second half of life. And, uh, you know, but, and that's always a tough one is when to be done. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle. And that's what I love about jujitsu because, we can do BJJ forever with the right partners. You know, it's right. like, you know, watching Helio roll with some of the guys when he was in his nineties. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I got to train with my dad um, cause he was a judo black belt and karate black belt. And 
So when we started getting into BJJ, he kind of got curious and into it, you know, with the knees and the back, uh, you know, injuries, things of that nature. But I still would play around on the mat and just have a good time. And uh, that's, you know, there's so much of that in the industry that exists. And it's just, it's where you're at, you know, because the older you get, the more you're looking for that piece. When you're in the middle, you're looking for like that whole, I created this, this is my game, you know, that relevance. When you're new, it's all about, you know, who's the toughest, what's the best. It's just that, that perspective bias of where I'm looking from is affecting what I'm seeing. So for us being black belts, instructors and coaches and people in the industry, we have to understand that we can't be everything for everybody. So we just have to try to walk the path and do the best job that we can and, and help them get, you know, where, where we have been able to go and help them see the broader picture. And that's right. The you know. And real and realize, you know, the, the, la the last thing that, that I might add too is that the, the one thing that hasn't changed is when you, when you start jujitsu to where you are now, because the guy that's been with me now, uh, his name is Will. He's been with me for probably close to 13 years. Mm -hmm. And when he first started out, he came from a, a striking background. And then he came in and saw my class. And, and he said, when he would go into a fight class, he said, you know, he said, if the guy was bigger than me, I was in trouble, man. He, he punched me. I was in trouble. He came into my class. He got tapped out by this girl that was about 110 pounds and Will's about 150, 160 in a footlock. And he goes, like, how did that, you know, he was so, like, shocked this little girl did it. And so, like, like with me, I mean, I've rolled with guys 100 pounds bigger than me. And now he says, I don't care who the guy is. He says, I, you know, I don't care if he's that much bigger or whatever. He said, I'll roll with him in his confidence level. And that's the thing. It does something to your confidence level where you really don't have to, you know, I've had confrontations in the street and I've used verbal jujitsu just to talk my way out of it. Yeah. And that's what we want. We want to be able to, you know, learn it so we don't have to practice it. And that's and one thing that, you know, when I was young, when I was really, really young, I wanted to get good at martial arts. So that way I, I could show people, you know, like, oh man, if somebody messes with me, I'll know this. And then the better that I got at martial arts, the less that I, I wanted that, like, you know, that became the opposite of what I wanted, you know, right, I, right. I just, I, you know, I didn't, I hated confrontation. I don't like it. Um, and I just see where it's from. It's like, it's, a, it's from such a place of emotional weakness yeah. that it just, it really, you know, it makes me sad when I see people have to act that way or behave that way because it just, it's a window to the soul. It's like, especially when you're experienced and you're a martial artist and you've been there, you know what that means. And, and you feel, you almost feel sorry for those people because that's how afraid of the world they are. You yeah. know, you're the barking dog because you're so afraid. And it, and it really, anymore, it kind of brings sympathy out of me a little bit because I just think, you know, what does your life have to be like for you to have to live this way? And I just wouldn't want that life for anybody. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I feel that the martial way kind of connects the mind and the body together. And, and it gives you, like you said, that confidence and a little bit of that purpose, and especially just the leadership roles that come with it, because you, you become an influencer of those around you. Um, 
Well, I've really enjoyed our talk today. It was yeah, very educational. Too. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of great stories. Is there anything you want to finish with? That? Uh... Oh, yeah. I have a guy, a um, friend of mine, named is Scott Burr, mm-hmm. who's a black belt. He is, I'm writing a book. Oh, cool. Um, the tentative name is called Worth Defending. Okay. Um, it's the stories this plus a you know some of the things i said today plus you know just my view of jujitsu from when i met orion to where it is today um so he's he's helping me write this and uh and then so i i'm after that's done i'll probably be uh you know teaching little seminars book signing you know because i really want you know i've been told by so many people they really need to know the roots of where it was in the U.S. And yep. so many people don't. I agree. Yeah. So that's my motivation for doing it. So yeah, eventually. people need to hear the story. I mean, they need to hear the story because how can you know where you're going if you don't know kind of where you're coming from and just the, the evolution of it? It just it's important. And especially like a guy like yourself, you know, being humble and, and through servant leadership, like you don't want it to be all about you. And that's not your goal. But at the same time, you're the one with the information. You have the stories. You were there. Right. You're on the front line. So, you know, it's basically, it's the burden of leadership, as I mentioned sometimes. <laughs> of, you know, you're going to have to propagate and kind of be the face of certain things. Because, um, you know, that's something you see a lot of guys as they move up through the ranks. You know, they're reluctant to get the rank because they know the responsibility comes with it. And that's basically kind of you with the evolution of jujitsu in America is, you were the one that was there, so the burden falls with you, and, and I'll definitely uh, I'll be excited to see the book. We'll have you out for sure, um, you know, and get you out to Arkansas to see our schools, and, and, now, and we'll definitely help you promote and, and get this story out there because I, I think it's an important one. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, sir. I hope you have a great week. You too, Caleb. Thank you very much.